Welcome to the sermon podcast of the Midtown Fellowship Granny White Congregation in Nashville, Tennessee. We are currently preaching a series from the book of Genesis called Back Where I Began, the search for meaning in the book of Genesis. It has been said that we can't know what we are supposed to do unless we know what story we are a part of. In the book of Genesis, God tells us in no uncertain terms what story we are a part of. We are a part of his story, a story that he has been writing since the beginning for our good and his glory. We're so glad you've joined us for this podcast, and if you are able, we'd like to invite you to join us in person for worship. We meet on Sunday mornings at 8.30 and 10.30 at 3410 Granny White Pike in Nashville, Tennessee. Well, good morning, everybody. Or should I say good morning to everybody that's not on spring break? I know. How did we all miss that ticket? Like, come on. Seriously, maybe we should all pack up and get the bus out in the back and load up. Does anybody have an address of where somebody is staying? Because we're coming. So uh, today, um, I am going to be preaching on a topic that Jesus and I have talked a lot about this because I feel like I am so unqualified to preach on this topic. In fact, um, I kind of feel like what's happening is that I'm actually preaching to me in this topic, and you guys are getting to eavesdrop on the conversation that's happening uh, between my ears, because uh, I'm telling you, uh, some of you are great at this. I have not been great at this. Some of you never have struggles in this area. I've had nothing but struggles in this area, and uh, so I'm going to preach on it. And what we're talking about today is marriage. And I got to tell you that for me, like, have you ever watched um, the Ironman competitions where people over in Hawaii, it's the swim, bike, run uh, competition, and they start the race with them swimming, I think it's like three miles in the ocean. Have you seen this? Have any of you ever been in water before? Like, are y'all here this morning? Like, And when you see these professionals, they're like gliding on top of the water, like they're moving in the water. I'm like, I didn't know people could do that. And that's what it appears sometimes when I compare my inside to your outside. You're just gliding along and I'm in the back and I'm doing the doggy paddle and I'm away from everybody else and the sharks all know it. So I've been called from the herd and they're all coming at me and I'm pretty sure I'm going to make it to shore but I'm going to have like bites out of me, you know, and even dolphins are going to feed on my flesh. (laughs) Because I struggle in this area. It's never been easy for Renee and I. I'm just going to say it from the very beginning. And marriage matters, and it matters to everybody in this room. And the reason it matters to everybody is because all of you have been impacted by marriage. You've been impacted by your grandparents' marriage. You've been impacted by your parents' marriage or lack thereof. You've been impacted by, you know, Uncle Tom who drinks too much at the family reunion in his marriage. You've been impacted by your own marriage, or maybe you've been impacted by not having a marriage. Like, whoever you are, marriage has touched your life in some way. So we're going to go to Genesis chapter 2. We're going to limp. I'm shark bit. And we're going to limp into uh, what I think Scripture is teaching us, some fundamentals about marriage Uh, But before we get there, let me say a couple things. One, if you go to Genesis chapter 2, I think it's in verse 18. I could be wrong. I may be wrong about a lot of things today, obviously. Uh, But 
Paradise, God has put Adam in paradise. And up to this point in uh, chapter two, all of chapter one is God doing stuff and then declaring it good. God created light, good. God created land, good. He created animals, good. Plants, good, 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 good. And he's always creating and going, oh, this is so good. Then we get to chapter two, verse 18, and he goes, "Mm, not good. It's the first not good in the Bible. And what he says is not good is he comes to Adam and he goes, it is not good that you are alone. Now, let's get our heads around this, okay? This is paradise. This is no sin. There is nothing wrong in the world. This is perfection. And in this perfection, Adam is experiencing loneliness. And God said, this isn't good. Now, I don't think he's talking about marriage there. Um, I think what he's talking about is community. We need each other. Because uh, we know that Jesus never got married, and he was the perfect fulfillment of humanity. In every way, he was content, yet he wasn't married. And even the Apostle Paul, who wrote most of the New Testament, never got married, and yet we hear him talk about he was content in all circumstances, maybe because he wasn't married. <laughs> okay, just, thank you. I had to say that. I think what God is talking about here is you and I are made for relationships. In fact, the way God made you, the way he made me, we we were made with a deep hunger to be loved. We need to be loved. We have a desire to be loved because God made us that way. But he also made us not just to be loved, but to love. It's not just enough to be loved. He made us to want to give out love. In fact, it's one of the greatest fears that we all have is that I'll never find somebody on this planet, one of my greatest fears, that I'll be able to love the way I want to love them or they'll love me the way I want to be loved because it's so inside of us. Like, have you ever been to uh, Climb Nashville over in Sylvan Park? It's a, it's a place where you, you climb, all right? And if you walk in, there are climbing walls all over the building and they're not just flat like concrete slabs like there are hand grips and foot grips and footholds all on the walls and think about relationships like that that the people in my life and all the relationships I create including marriage are like handholds that are allowing me to lift myself up and to experience more of the fullness of what I was made for and what life is about so relationships are essential as we go into this And one of those relationships is marriage. We're going to talk about it. But before we go there, I want to say one more thing. In this same verse, in verse 18 of chapter 2 of Genesis, God says, Adam, I'm going to give you a helper. Um, Or if you read the King James Version, it says, I'm going to give you a help meet. Uh, And i got to just tell you, I hate that. Like, I just cringe at at this whole idea, because it seems to paint this picture that Adam was made in the image of God, you know, and then out of his rib, you know, now here comes Eve made from Adam, and Adam is glorious in all of his goodness, and then there's Eve over here. She's just a helper. And this image is not at all what Scripture is talking about, that Adam is more and Eve is less. It's not that Adam has more of God and Eve has less of God. Or that Adam has more value and Eve has less value. That's not it at all. In fact, when you go to the Hebrew, the word for helper is izar. And this is a really interesting word because it's a military word. 
it actually is the word that's used that when a nation is under attack by, by an enemy that is greater than them, then Izar is when another nation rallies its forces and comes to the rescue of this nation that's under attack. It, it is a warrior word. It is a word that God actually wears himself all throughout the Old Testament when he calls himself the divine warrior, that he is the Azar of Israel, that when Israel is under attack, the battle's not theirs, the battle is the Lord's. And he is a warrior that's coming now to the defense of a helpless nation that will not survive without him. The image that God's giving us here of Eve is one of power. It's one of strength. And the original design is that we are here to fight for one another. Then sin comes into the world and we just learn how to fight with each other. We'll talk about that in a minute. <clears throat> so before John comes and reads this passage, let me just say, so we know that God made us for relationships. We know that what we're not talking about is an unequal partnership in marriage. It's an equal partnership. But when I'm not, I'm not going to give you a blueprint on how to have a happy marriage. I'm not going to give you here the secrets to joy and peace in your home. Um, what I'm going to give you is what I think is a fundamental foundation on which you can build marriage. The, it's almost like the footings in which we build our home around. And when I was thinking about this this week, I came across this definition of foundation. That foundation is, its primary purpose is to support the load of the entire building. A well-designed and strong foundation keeps the building standing while the forces of nature wreak havoc. Well-built foundations keep the occupants of the building safe during calamities, such as an earthquake, a flood, strong winds, or just being married. I put the last part in there, okay? <clears throat> so you ready to dive in? Okay, the imperfect guide on this tour we're about to take. John, come and read for us. This is Genesis chapter 2, verse 22 through 25. All right, this is the word of the Lord. So the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep. And while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs and then closed up the place with flesh. Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib he had taken out of the man, and he brought her to the man. The man said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. That is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife, and they become one flesh. Adam and his wife were both naked, and they felt no shame. Okay, read that, read that last verse one more time. Adam and his wife were both naked, and they felt no shame. One more time. Adam and his wife were both naked, and they felt no shame. Thank you, John. I just like hearing somebody say naked in church. <clears throat> Lord, help us now, uh, because we don't know what that's like. We don't know what it's like to be fully exposed and not no shame. We don't know what it's like to breathe the air of no shame. And we certainly don't know what it's like to be naked and unashamed. And yet our hearts long for it. Our hearts uh, hunger for it. That shame would be so lifted from our lives that, Lord, we would be free to love. And I pray, Father, that you'd help us now. You know, Lord, um, we need your spirit to transform the foolishness of preaching into something that transforms hearts. And thank you that you're here. In Christ's name, amen. So here's this famous passage of Scripture 
bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. Here's this famous line that this is why a man leaves his father and his mother and is united to his wife, and they become one flesh. As Dan Allender, uh, the famous author and counselor, said, this is the passage where we discover leaving, cleaving, and weaving. And I thought that was so clever that I'm not going to try to do better than that. So that's what we're going to talk about today, is leaving, cleaving, and weaving. And why is this the foundation for us to build a marriage on? Well, let's start with leaving. It says, now this is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife. There's a leaving. <clears throat> now we could say that what this means is, is that when you get married, you move out of your parents' house and you actually go rent a condo or something or build your own house, that you need to put distance between you and your parents and you need to go do your own thing now. But anybody that knows the history of the Israelites or the Jewish nation knew that when they read that, they know that's not what that means at all. In fact, in Jewish tradition of this time, if a son got married, then he would bring his wife into his father's house. In fact, when they got engaged, the son would then go with his friends and his parents, and they would construct an addition onto his father's house, kind of their own family wing. And then when they finished that, that building construction, then he would go and get his bride, and they would have the marriage ceremony, and he would move her into her father's house. In fact, that's why when Scripture talks about that Jesus said to his disciples, I go away to build a house for you. What Jesus is saying is, I'm the groom. You're the bride. I'm going to my father's house, and in Jewish tradition, I'm building an extension onto my father's house that I'm going to bring you into. The imagery is beautiful. So it's not talking about um, space. It's not talking about moving out. So it must mean something different. It does. One of the foundations that we pour is leaving, that I'm moving out from underneath the authority of my parents. They no longer have authority over you. You can honor them, but you are not called to obey them that you're actually shifting your loyalties from your parents to your spouse. Now you're thinking about your spouse before you think about your parents. Now you're doing what is best for your family, not your parents and their family. And you go, okay, I got that. Easy, not so fast. I discovered how difficult this was and how difficult this is to tell you this story because my mother-in-law is sitting right here on the second row. <laughs> and I'm about to tell a story about her and she doesn't know it, all right? <laughs> you don't think I feel vulnerable? And I already told you I'm lousy at marriage. <laughs> Thank you. You're amazing. <laughs> and I'm still going to tell the story, all right? <laughs> When Renee and I got married, we spent every Christmas day with Connie and Ed at their home. It was beautiful. House was decorated. Food was unbelievable. The spirit in the house was welcoming. It was warm. It was inviting. We were always ready to go. No matter whether we lived two hours away or 20 hours away, we drove on the day before Christmas to get to Connie's house on Christmas Eve so that we could be there for Christmas Eve and wake up on Christmas morning in Connie and Ed's house. It was glorious. Until about 10 years into our marriage, we had three kids, and I turned to my wife and I said to her, hey, honey, 
you know what I've been thinking? That, yeah, that's dangerous. They, <laughs> I've been thinking, you know what I would love to do? I'd love to start our family tradition. And here's what I would like to do for our family tradition. I'd like to take all the kids snow skiing on Christmas Day. Let's go to Colorado. Here's what came out of Renee's mouth. Are you kidding me? Do you know what my mother would say? You, I'm not going to dive into the family dynamics because I'd want to live the rest of this day. But anytime you buck against the authority of your parents, there's going to be problems. If you don't believe me, just try this. Just a little experiment. If you're married here today, I just want you to try a little experiment this week with your parents. Just say this one word. It's not hard. It's not long, but it's incredibly powerful. This one word, no. Say no to them. Say no to that family tradition that everybody goes to, but everybody hates. Say no to when you go to that family thing and there's that family elephant in the middle of the room and everybody's walking around and ignoring it and you call it out and say, I'm not walking around it anymore. Try that one. Try saying no to putting up with Uncle Tom when he comes to that family event and gets drunk. Say, I'm not putting up with that anymore. Tom, here's the deal, bro. I have children here and they're more important to me than you. And if you're going to drink, either you leave or we leave. But we're not staying here. I'm not exposing my children to your poor behavior. No. Just try it. Oh. <sighs> try to say no to your parents when they want to give your kids something for Christmas that you don't want them to have. And the way you handle it is, is when your parents leave, you just go put it up in the attic. No, our five-year-old cannot have a cell phone. I know I'm making fun of it. But here's the crazy thing. It's not just saying no to, to real-life situations. It's also saying no to a lot of the stuff that we inherited from our parents. Every one of you inherited stuff from your parents. In fact, here's what's crazy thing about marriage, is that every one of you has a backpack. And let me tell you something. Parents are great at stuffing stuff into our backpack. And when Renee and I got married, I had my backpack, you know, and I got all my stuff in my backpack. And guess what? She had her backpack. And here's what we really thought. You know what? Our backpacks are so compatible that when we start to unpack them, it's just going to create this joyous reunion of great, like, just coming together in simplicity and glory. And what am I talking about? Here's, here, let, me, let me just give you an example of some of the stuff. Where is it? I know it's in here somewhere. Oh, this one's a great one. This is the book that my family gave me on conflict. Uh, oh, it's a glorious book. And they gave me a book. And it's very clear. Your family did too. You learned how to fight from your mom and dad. All right? Just trust. And they learned it from their mom and dad. And let me tell you what I learned on my, the first page of conflict in the book that my parents gave me. Winners get everything. So I grew up in a home where my parents were absent all the time. It was Lord of the Flies. I had two brothers. And literally, if we would have had a remote control, it would have been drenched in blood because we fought in the backyard over who got to change the channel. I'm not kidding you. I mean, like physically, like over the last Twinkie in the cupboard. Are you kidding me? You call in reinforcements for that battle. 
The one who wins gets everything. Page one, lesson one, there is no lesson two. So let me tell you why this matters. When Renee and I got married, uh, we had a great uh, dating life and engagement was beautiful. We got married and we had our first argument. We were living in an apartment. We were both in graduate school. And I, I can't really remember what it was. I think it was over that she thought we should clean dishes after we eat dinner. And I thought you should just let them stack up. I don't, something, but I, I could tell she was upset with me. And I realized we're about to get into a conflict. And so what do I do? I pull out the family book on conflict. Chapter one, whoever wins gets it all. So I'm like, I am so ready. Like, are you kidding me? I haven't had a good fight in weeks, man. Let's, let's go for this. And so when I look up to present my argument to Renee, she wasn't there. I'm like, Renee? And I'm walking through our little 400-square-foot apartment, and she's nowhere. And the door to the bathroom is closed and locked. And I'm knocking on the door. Renee, are you in there? No answer. Renee, hello. See, here's what Renee learned from Connie. No, you see that. That's so unfair. <laughs> I should just be in right now, shouldn't I? I'm sorry. Renee grew up in a house of all girls, and it was a quieter house. And what she learned about conflict is if you just ignore it, it'll go away. And so she'd gone to the bathroom to lock her door, to ignore it. I'm in the kitchen revving up for the fight so that I can win. Wow. We both had to leave our family tradition. We both had to say, no, you can't ignore, and no, you can't fight like that. Something new had to happen in this family dynamics. But here's the crazy thing, is that my family gave me all kinds of books. Like, <laughs> I love this one. This one's on money. Like, my family taught me about money. One of the things they taught me is you're never going to have any. We grew up very poor. And always be suspicious of people who do. Honestly, I'm telling you, I had to work through that one. All right? I love this one here. This one here was on work. You know what my family taught me? When I turned 15, my dad gave me a work permit, which a parent had to sign so a kid could go to work when they were 15. I started working full-time at 15. I've never not worked full-time since then. What do you think the message was about work? You want to talk about value? You want to talk about you better not waste your time? You want to talk about if you're just playing? Anyway, that's okay. But my family taught me all kinds of things. Like I, I love this book here. This one this one was on sex. And what's odd about this is there's nothing in this book. <laughs> we never talked about sex growing up. You know, the only place that I ever heard anybody talking about sex was like in dark corners where you're whispering. So I learned from a very early age that sex was dirty, that it wasn't something God created for glorious purposes. It's something that if you wanted to experience it, you need to recognize that it's coming with a lot of shame. Shh. I learned a lot. <laughs> no, I didn't. And then my family had books on rest. They had books on play. This, this is a great one here. Wait, where is it? It's in here. Oh, this that one right there? That's the book my parents taught me on communication. I... <laughs> Didn't I, I, my parents taught me about emotions. You know what my parents taught me about emotions? You have two emotions. 
you're either happy or angry. Those are the only two emotions. And when you're angry, you try to make a beeline to happiness as fast as you can. Get away from anger. It wasn't until some men that deeply loved me and began to nurture my soul, began to teach me that in my soul are these abundance of emotions that God has given me. And they're all good and they're all glorious and they're all for his purpose. And they taught me how to start to recognize them and talk about them and embrace them and see the purpose for why they're in their heart. I didn't get that from my mom and dad. All right. Then uh, love, not a lot there, but... Is it possible that you inherited stuff from your family too that you don't even know you inherited? Do you know that my freshman year in college, I went to Louisiana Tech, uh, not an Ivy League school. In fact, my freshman dorm that I moved into, they put me in a small little 200-square-foot room with bunk beds with two other guys with no air conditioning in North Louisiana. I know we, did, we didn't even think about going to get like a window fan. And it was like 100 degrees. And the first night I was in that dorm, I couldn't go to sleep. I couldn't go to sleep until I reached over and pulled my blanket up over me and wrapped it around my neck and went to sleep. And the next morning, my roommates are like, dude, you're just covered in sweat. Why do you have that blanket all wrapped around you? And I said, yeah, I don't really know. And I started to think about, wait a minute, how long have I slept like that? And I remember when I was eight years old, eight years old, I got up in the middle of the night when everybody else was asleep. And I thought, oh, I'm going to be so clever. I'm going to sneak into the TV room. Nobody's going to fight me for what channel. I'm going to turn it on. I'm going to complete control of the television set. And when I turned it on, it was one of those old black and white horror movies of Dracula. And here was the scene. Dracula is coming into the bedroom of somebody sleeping through the window and comes in and while they're asleep, bites into their neck and kills them. And as an eight-year-old child, that was the most horrifying thing I'd ever seen in my life. And I went to bed, and I wrapped my blanket around my neck because if he came into my room, he wasn't going to get me. Guess what? Ten years later, I couldn't go to sleep without rock, wrapping a blanket around my neck. Is it possible that a trauma of something that's happened to you in the past is still influencing you today? That's just a simple example. But your, your family has influence over you. And if you don't take the time to identify what your family gave you, then you're not going to take time to put it down. And then you're not going to take time to pick up something more beautiful. Because you're in a new family now. And this new family has new rules and new gifts. Well, okay, enough about leaving. Let's talk about cleaving. Cleaving, actually, the Hebrew word there is unite. Or you can translate it as sticky. Uh, and some even translate it as stuck. It's a glorious word for marriage, isn't it? You're stuck. But in fact, it's this idea of two people actually coming together as one. It's this beautiful picture of being united. And culture, our culture, has taken that beautiful picture, and we, we really have perverted it. And we have turned this stickiness or this stuckness into an idol. In fact, what we've done is we've kind of turned this into, I am going to spend my life finding the right person. And when I find that right person, guess what? They're going to complete me. They're going to be everything that I've been looking for. They're going to fill up every broken part of my heart. They're going to fill up every need I have to be loved. They're, just going, to, they're going to be my lover. They're going to be my best friend. They're going to be everything I could ever possibly want from another person. 
And we live in a culture that has fanned a flame, has fanned this flame of this fantasy that there is somebody on this planet that's going to fill you up completely. Allow me to explain. Modern theologian Shania Twain, in her song from this moment on, listen to what she says. And this was a hit. No, Shania, if you're in this room right now, I'm not dissing you, all right? Her song is, I'd give anything and everything, and I will always care, always, through weakness and strength, happiness and sorrow, for better or for worse, I will love you with every beat of my heart. Now, the only way that's ever going to get true is you're going to love your spouse with every beat of your heart is if somebody kills you at the altar right after you say, I do. The song continues. <laughs> From this moment, I have been blessed. I live only for your happiness. But it was only true, Renee. And for your love, I give my last breath, and from this moment on. Is that possible that there will be somebody on this planet that the only reason they exist is for my happiness? <laughs> We've turned it into an idol. We think that marriage is going to give us the life that we've always wanted. We think it's going to give us the purpose that we've always wanted, and we anchor all of our hopes. We dump all of our expectations, and this is why a lot of times marriage is so miserable because we put so many impossible expectations on marriage, and marriage was never intended to live up to those expectations. In fact, marriage isn't strong enough to handle your unrealistic expectations. So what does it mean that we, we have been, we're cleaving together? Well, first, we have to acknowledge what it doesn't mean is that somewhere out there in the world is the right person. This is Stanley uh, Hoverson. He is actually a professor at Duke Divinity School. He put it this way. Here's a fact. The fact that when you get married, you always marry the wrong person. No, no amens. That's a shocker. <laughs> we never know who we marry. We think we do. Even if we first marry the right person, just give it a while, and he or she will change. For marriage being the enormous thing it is means we are not the same person after we enter into it. See, marriage is like a couple of porcupines huddling up together to try to stay warm on a cold night. We are imperfect people, and if we are looking for somebody to complete us, we're asking the wrong question. In fact, what cleaving actually means, that in my brokenness, in my not-enoughisms, in my insufficiencies, I am going to love you. In 1 Corinthians chapter 8, Paul's talking about this when he talks about, uh, can we eat food that's been sacrificed to idols? It was a real issue back in that time with the Corinthian church. And here's how he did it. He, he says, I know there's a big argument about well, are idols really real? So does it really matter? Like if, if I sacrifice a lamb to this false idol, can I take it home and eat it with my family? Like, and here's what he said. He said, that's an important controversy that you should talk about and wrestle with. But it's the wrong question. He says, now about food sacrificed to idols, we know that we will possess knowledge. We all possess knowledge. But knowledge puffs up while love builds up. Those who think they know something do not yet know as they ought to know. In other words, if you're trying to be right, you're asking the wrong question. 
The real question is, how do I love? And this imperfect matchup, as we cleave together, how in my imperfection do I love? Because I find it so difficult to do. In fact, this is the power of cleaving. It's where I realize, Lord, I'm not praying that you change my spouse. I'm praying that you change me. I can't tell you how easy it is for me to pray that God would change Renee. With such ease, I pray that prayer. I mean, it flows out of me like nothing. You know what's hard for me? God, change me. Change me. And that's what cleaving is. Is we're stuck to another imperfect person and not saying to God, this isn't fair. You should change them. We're stuck to another imperfect person and we're saying, Lord, change me. Change me. And then finally, weave. Leave, cleave, weave. We only have a few minutes, so let me wrap this up. Some people think what I'm talking about is sex. It could be. I mean, you can make a case for that. I'm not against that topic, you know. Uh, but let me take you uh, to something a little different. In Ephesians chapter 5, this, this is a pretty controversial passage of Scripture because it's where it's saying, wives, submit to your husbands as unto the Lord. Whoa. But then the next verse is, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her. So it's this picture of, hey, wives, you need to lay yourself down for your husband. Hey, husbands, you need to lay yourself down for your wives. And it's this dance. It's almost like they are woven together in this dance of life where they're practicing submission to the Lord and serving one another. This beautiful dance where they have woven together. And then in verse 31, it says this, For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife. Sound familiar? And the two will become one flesh. This is a profound mystery. But listen to the next words. Paul says, But I'm talking about Christ and the church. Like what? But you were talking about marriage, right? No, I was talking about Christ and the church. See, here's the profound mystery. You can't do it. Sorry. In fact, let me read for you how impossible this thing is. In 1 Corinthians chapter 13, you've heard this at every wedding, and I always laugh when I hear it at weddings because it sounds like the Shania Twain song, you know? I promise you everything all the time, 100%. Love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It is not proud. It does not dishonor others. It is not self-seeking. It is not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrong. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects. Always. It's in the Bible. It always trusts. Always trusts. Always hopes. Always perseveres. And is always impossible. It's impossible. If that's the standard for love, I can't do it. And there's the beautiful story of the gospel. You can't. But what's impossible for you is possible for him. This is the picture of Jesus' love for you. Jesus said, here's the mystery. I'm the groom, you're the bride. In fact, you could look at the entire Bible through the lens of wedding and marriage. In fact, the last chapter in the Bible is all about a wedding. And the wedding feast is us and him. That Jesus came for his bride and his bride despised him and hung him on a cross. But is it possible that the whole foundation of marriage is actually being loved by God, allowing Jesus to love us? 
They were naked and unashamed. Can you imagine a life where you would feel no shame? Because you know what shame does? Shame says there's something profoundly wrong with me that I don't deserve to be loved and I don't belong. And so we get on this treadmill of I gotta accomplish something or I gotta look a certain way or I've gotta do something or I gotta talk a certain way so that I can be loved and I can be accepted. And we go to parties and we leave because we're embarrassed because we're rethinking all of our conversations. And we're like, I dropped the ball there. I dropped the ball there. I dropped the ball there. They're not going to love me and they're not going to accept me. Or we go out in public and we're just having a bad hair day and shame just starts to heap itself on us. Or we come to church and you've got a past that you don't want anybody to know about. And you know, oh, bro, if they knew that about me, or I'm talking about marriage and maybe you failed in marriage. And maybe you've been divorced and you're sitting here going, oh, he's talking about marriage and I've been divorced. And we got all these opportunities for shame in our lives that destroy us. Imagine not being ashamed. We're so afraid. And shame makes us so afraid that I don't deserve that kind of love in 1 Corinthians 13. In 1966, England won the World Cup. You all remember that? <laughs> Connie doesn't follow soccer. I'm sorry. She may be the only one. But the team captain was Bobby Moore, and his job there in Wembley Stadium was to ascend the staircase going up to where the queen is, where she held the trophy. Uh, and his responsibility was to go up there, receive the trophy, and shake her hand. And as he's going up the stairs, he became terrified. Listen to what he said. After people asked him what it was like, he said, well, actually, to be honest with you, I was terrified. He said, the queen was wearing pristine white gloves, and my hands were covered in the sweat, the blood, the dirt, and the mud of battle. And I was about to touch royalty. That's how I feel with Jesus sometimes. I come to church, and I'm just covered and just the blood, the guts, the spit, the drizzle, the failures, the false conversations, the way we didn't handle that, and just marriage just becomes this ball of just regret and shame. And I'm coming to Jesus, and I'm like, oh, I can't, how do I touch you? How do I come near to you? And here's, here's the mystery. Because marriage reveals how selfish I am, how greedy I am, how angry I am, how discontent I am, how self-centered I am, how immature I am, how many bad habits that I have that I didn't realize were bad habits until another person started living in those bad habits. To all my self-delusion, because even if you don't believe anything about yourself, the person you're married to does. Marriage reveals all of that. And yet Jesus says, come to me, all who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your soul. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. And what happens when we come to Jesus? Jesus begins to take all those places of shame and he lifts them from us. And he takes all our sins and throws them as far as the east is from the west. And in replace for that, he pours his love into us to be accepted, to be loved, to be naked before him with no shame. And then to take the strength of that and turn to another person and say, I'm going to do it imperfectly, but I'm going to come to love you. That we're going to leave, we're going to cleave, and then we're going to weave our lives together 
to learn what it means to practice love with another human. I'm still learning. <clears throat> I mean, we're still married. <clears throat> We've tried to mess it up in the past, and some of y'all know some of those stories, but we're still together. So wherever you are, there's no shame. Um, if you're struggling, welcome to the club. But let me encourage you, if you're struggling, you should not struggle alone. It's too heavy to pick up by yourself. Finding these and putting them down, that's, that's hard work. And I just encourage you, there are plenty of people in this community that can help you. Um, if you don't know somebody, you just call me and we'll help. But this is too important um, for you and for those around you. So let me pray. Lord, thank you for this crazy gift called marriage that exposes so much of our need for you. Thank you, Father, that in that you don't abandon us, but you love us profoundly. Um, and that, in fact, you actually love us greater than we love ourselves. And you love us greater than we love other people. And you invite us into uh, your rest. And I pray, Father, right now for every marriage in this room that may see themselves in some of these stories, um, that, Lord, you would be kind to them. And, Lord, soften their hearts um, to let you work through them toward each other. I pray for everybody in this room, Lord, that has gone through a divorce, that today you would lift that, that veil of shame that maybe they feel or... Lord, the sense of failure. And I pray that, Lord, you'd restore unto them uh, your love for them and your heart for them and that they would know your peace today. I pray for the single people in this room, Lord, who are wondering, uh, should they be married or will they ever be married? Or that wherever they are today, Father, that you would um, comfort them, uh, strengthen them, give them great uh, courage to know that where they are today is right where you need them.